ever met someone that made you both comfortable and uncomfortable at the same time? That was my experience with our guest on this episode of the Suicide Prevention Show. Jenny Landon made me immediately comfortable with her disarming style and immediately uncomfortable because as I got to know her, I realized that she sees and hears the world in a different way. And I realized that these three factors that we're going to go into around the safety of knowing three factors that put you at risk are very closely related to how I might've accidentally been putting people at risk, even on my mission to make teen suicide a thing of the past. So hang on, the ride's gonna get more interesting from here. Please help me welcome to the studio, Jenny Landon. Hey, Jenny, poof, it's magic. Hey, hey, Jackie, how are y'all? I am well, I am well. All right, where are you today in the world? Because you have been a traveling lady. I have been traveling and I actually am back in Minnesota and um, I'm actually sitting in my kitchen because my entire house is empty of furniture everywhere except my kitchen because we're moving this week. So um, just a little bit of craziness. So if you hear people, um, I've, they seem to be dispersing, but, uh, but yes. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you explained that. I'm like going, oh, your kitchen is so clean. My <laughs> counters, I can't see that much of my countertop. So I am, I am neurotic. I will say I usually don't have much on my countertops. Um, I think when you grow up in a household of clutter, um, you know, you either continue down that path, but for me, it was just like, I need nothing. I need bare countertops. But in this case, it's extreme um, because it's all in boxes in my driveway. All in boxes in your driveway. So where are you moving to? I'm moving seven minutes around the corner. <laughs> so Yes. I love it. I love it. That's so beautiful. Jenny, please tell everyone a little bit about you. I'm not going to try to read your bio because I will, I will go, oh, wait a minute. We don't have time for all of this. So, <laughs> so let, me give you the, let me give you the short version for everyone out there who does not know me. Um, I actually lost my dad to suicide when I was 20 years old. And that's really what propelled me into this world of trying to understand mental health. I was getting my degree in psychology when he died. I was devastated as many people can understand. Um, I was very fortunate to have the right people in my life who were able to help me to return to school and return to my life. Um, and when I got to school, I let all of my professors know that I had lost my dad to suicide and that the stigma associated to suicide did not reflect who he was. And so I needed to understand what happened to him. And, and I was incredibly fortunate to have extremely supportive um, instructors who also pushed me really hard out of my comfort zone. Um, but it's what laid the foundation for my journey of healing. After I graduated from college, I went on and became a crisis counselor and a public educator in suicide prevention. 
five years later, I had my first daughter where I then went through post from depression. And even though I was a trained crisis counselor and a public educator, I missed all of my own signs and I actually became suicidal. Um, I, again, I was fortunate to have the right people in my life who helped me to navigate that as well as many other. Uh Oh, as well as many other. Sorry. Oh, it went silent. Your microphone. And I was like, okay. It's telling me my internet is unstable. My, my, sorry, my ex-husband, I'm still getting used to that. uh, just took everything apart. So hopefully my internet will stay for the next hour. Um, but in any case, I I was just saying that I, again, I was fortunate to have the right people help me navigate, um, life struggles, the biggest struggle. Um, and the one that I would say really, truly brought focus and clarity to the work that I'm doing today is the fact that in January of 2019, my daughter at the age of 15 attempted suicide. Now, this is what I do, this work. And I teach people about wellness and I teach people about changing the conversation, improving the conversation. Um, and yet I was, was facing this situation with my daughter, which really, this is where it's important for us to all understand that no one is immune. And we really truly have to look at our entire wellness. We have to look at the mind, the body and the emotions um, to truly be able to um, experience wellness. Uh, but I know today we're here to talk about the three factors. Um, and so that's, oh. that's, that's really me. That's, I mean, there's so much more to me. My, my passion is being a mom and, and really spreading a message of love. All right. Thank you, Jenny. Um, you know, you covered a amazing career and bracketed in the sense of No matter what we do, the risk is still there for those we love and for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so while you were going to talk about three factors, what you just did was share three suicide stories, right back to back, multi-generational, all one family. And yet when in our first conversation, I said to you, Jenny, suicide is contagious. You said, uh, actually, Jackie, it's not. And so is it okay to start there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, Yeah, so this is something that I teach is that suicide itself is not contagious. And when we go about talking as if it is, we're actually instilling fear in people um, because it's it's not strep throat. It's not COVID, right? Um, What is contagious, however, is um, one of the three factors that we're going to discuss. And that is a shift in belief. Um, And it's this idea that um, we might suddenly start to believe that we are not worthy. We believe that the world would be better off without us. We believe that it's never going to get better. So that's why when we see um, people in high profile positions die from suicide, and then people will talk about the contagion factor, the ripple effect. Yes, there is a ripple effect, but, but it isn't that suicide is contagious. We really need to understand that. It's this like, well, you know what? If Robin Williams couldn't survive, how could I, Right. And, and so it's, it's that shift in belief that we really have to be aware of. 
Cool. Thank you. That's a, that's a really powerful factor and a great distinction between one that is totally out of your control. You're, you can't control if you've been exposed to strep throat. Yeah. Right. But you, you can, and you really can't control if you've been exposed to somebody else's belief system, but there are way things you can do. So, mm -hmm. right. And, and, you know, and even with, um, you know, it's not even about being exposed to someone else's belief system in, and we'll talk about this more, but when someone is in crisis, their ability to think clearly has been compromised. Right. And what happens is those dark thoughts that, that overwhelming, um, despair takes over. And so that's why there's a shift in belief and, and their ability to believe in themselves and believe that love is the greatest tool and to believe that, that anything is possible is diminished. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to be aware of. And so that's when, um, especially when we know the other two factors, that if we know someone who might be struggling with um, the other two factors, we, we want to step in and we want to know what are they thinking? What are they believing right now? Cool. All right. So take us there. If the first factor is this shifts in belief, mm -hmm. what's the second one? So I actually put them in a different order when I teach okay. it. And cool. so um, when I'm teaching people about the three factors that put someone at the highest risk for suicide, um, first and foremost, I talk about extreme distress. Um, and what I mean by extreme distress is that this is not simply divorce or job loss or death of a loved one. When someone's wellness has been compromised and their ability to think clearly um, has, has been compromised, then extreme distress can be as simple as a bad haircut. It could be an argument between two friends. Um, for our students, it could be getting a, a B instead of an A, right? So it could be something small. And so what you want to pay attention to, because maybe you don't know if someone's mental health has been compromised. So one of the ways that, that you might be alerted is that someone that you know is making a really big deal out of a situation that normally wouldn't be a big deal, right? Um, whether it wouldn't be a big deal to you, or especially if you know this is something that normally wouldn't bother this person, and yet they can't seem to move past it. That would be a really important sign that they're going through extreme distress. Cool. And then the second factor would be isolation. Now, we've all lived in isolation, you know, for the last year and a half, it's been really difficult. But I want us to think about isolation beyond just being confined to a space where you're alone. And, and partly because I also want to point out that there are some people who actually thrive in that alone time, right? So my younger daughter, she genuinely needs that time to herself to decompress and, and just find herself, right? Now, my older daughter, alone time for myself as well, alone time can be very difficult. Um, but I want us to look at isolation in... The idea that, you know, we're on we're on this um, summit right now. We've got, you know, multiple listeners, multiple people attending. And, you know, so I want you to think about when you're in a space with 20 people, 
I would, I would guarantee you that at least two or three, if not more, do not feel comfortable speaking up and being genuine to who they are as an individual. Um, and so that, that being able to stay silent or be feeling like you're forced to stay silent, not openly share, not openly express what you're going through. Um, that is actually a very serious form of isolation that can be incredibly harmful. And this is where, you know, when we talk about, again, people like Robin Williams, who are, they're the spotlight, right? They're the star of the show. Um, but I want you to even think about your friends who are the life of the party. And, you know, when they show up, the fun begins. But have you ever noticed that a lot of times those particular people are either the life of the party or they're the biggest flake you know? And I hear from people all the time when they lost someone to suicide and they say, oh, but they were the funnest and they were, they were the most entertaining and it just took us all by surprise. We couldn't believe it. Well, I started researching this and talking to people I know who are the life of the party. And what I found was that people who are the life of the party oftentimes will not show up if they don't feel like they can be that person. If they can't muster the energy to, to be exciting and lively and entertaining, then they won't go at all. And so again, we look at that as a form of isolation, right? They're not able to show their whole selves. So sometimes they're the party animal, but sometimes they're quiet and reserved and being able to appreciate all aspects of those people and helping them to know that we appreciate all aspects of those people. And so I would even say to my friends, don't you know, I would rather have you there even quiet than not there at all. And, and really they have a hard time. Each and every one I talked to had a hard time believing that. I can believe that. To be true, I can believe that it's possible to be isolated in the middle of a crowded room. Mm -hmm. um, Self-isolation is how I survived growing up. And I could hide behind a book when I was too big to hide under the furniture, which is what I was doing when I was smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, I could hide behind a book. And mm -hmm. so it's possible to choose to be isolated because of extreme conditions or because it actually feeds your soul. Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer and you can't tell who's struggling. You can't tell by looking the, right. the outside and the inside are not the same. Right. 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 And that's so now, you know, all three factors, extreme isolation um, or sorry, extreme distress, you have isolation and then you have a shift in belief. And what's so beautiful about understanding these three factors is how you can then implement it. Um, so for instance, I, you know, I teach this in my presentations, but I also try to teach it to my friends and, and especially to my board members. And, um, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, I'm still getting used to the fact that I have an ex-husband, um, 2020 was, was a year of extreme distress for me and isolation. And, and I had many times where I had a shift in belief. And, um, and I can say that I experienced more suicidal moments in 2020 in the first part of 2021 than I ever have in my life. And in February of 2021, a really good friend of mine reached out to me and, uh, and I picked up the phone. It was late at night. And he said, uh, he said, Jenny, I'm really worried about you. He said, I know you're going through extreme distress because of the divorce and, and just different aspects of your life. 
Um, he said, I haven't heard from you in almost two weeks, which makes me think that you're starting to isolate yourself. And he said, you know, you taught me what the three factors are. So I'm asking you right now, where's your head? What are you thinking? What are your beliefs? Now, as close as I am to this friend, he wasn't someone that I would immediately reach out to during my moments of feeling suicidal. Um, it is sad, but true. I will say that I have probably three to five friends that I know I can connect with when I'm really struggling because I know that they will know how to respond to me in a way that actually supports me rather than making me feel worse. And in that moment, this friend who I love dearly, but wouldn't have been someone I would have called or reached out to, I suddenly knew he understood. He understood. And by him simply asking me where I was at and the way he presented the question, I felt so safe. And I was honest. And I said, I'm not okay. I'm really not okay. And this is where it became even more beautiful. One, he said, do I need to get in the car and come there right now? And I said, no, it's okay. It's late. But will you stay on the phone with me? And he did. And by doing that, immediately my isolation was taken away. He also helped me to talk through some of the things that were making me feel that the distress was really worse than it was. Because the reality is, as difficult as divorce is, as difficult as my life going into complete um, upheaval, I'm safe. I'm good, right? But I needed to talk through some things to help me remember where I really am. And by doing all of that, my belief system started to come back to what it was really meant to be, which is that I am loved, I am safe, and that my children do need me. Something as simple as, you know, if you see something, say something. If you notice one of these factors, two of these factors, if people stop having contact with you and you know that something's going on in their life, check in on the third factor. It's a really beautiful way to explain how intervention works on this very basic level, which is where most lives are saved or lost. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really before there's any connection with a mental health professional. This is the space that, as you know, this is where I play before anybody thinks someone's even at risk. And you're a little further downstream. And when you think that there's a maybe a possibility, yeah, right. now there's this checklist. Right. And you have to have it because I'm with you, Jackie. I, I am a firm believer in teaching wellness, right? I truly believe that the way that the traditional suicide prevention presentations are being taught are outdated. And, and a lot of times we're doing more harm than good because they are being approached from a place of fear and they are instilling oh. fear in our audience. The, right? the constant watchfulness. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. Are there signs? Is your kid this? Is your right. friend that? Right. I mean, the hypervigilance. Right. That was, and, it was awful. Right. And the problem with that is, uh, you know, I've raised my children to be very open and very honest. Um, we talk about mental health, physical health, emotional health. We talk about it all, all the time. Their, their friends reach out to me. Um, you know, I talk to the parents of their friends. We have, we have a great sense of community. Even that being said, though, my daughter still attempted, right? So even 
teaching the wellness, being part of that, believing in it. Again, there are moments that um, someone is going to go through these three situate these three factors at once, right? When they experience all three at once. And, and I will never forget that day because I absolutely knew something was wrong, but I chose to put my work before my daughter that day. And only because I had rescheduled a meeting with this individual multiple times already. And I felt bad, but I will tell you, I've never done that since then. Right. I have been on podcasts where my child has come to my office door and I see the look on her face and I go, yep, we need to hold. Right. And they are my priority. As much as I want to get this message out to as many people as I can, my family, my loved ones are always going to be my priority. But what I think was really powerful was after my daughter attempted and she was open and honest about it again, because of the way it's being presented in schools from this platform that is so fear-based, um, when she was at school and she was experiencing anxiety or she had stress, um, students would go up to her and would ask her if she was okay. And what she said to me was, mom, I can't win. If I say, no, I'm totally freaking out over this test. Then my friends would say to me, oh my gosh, you're suicidal. We have to get you to the social worker. If she says, yeah, I'm totally fine. Don't worry about me. They go, oh my gosh, you're lying. You're suicidal. We have to get you to the social worker, right? I mean, she couldn't win. And it was from being honest, but because so many of the other students didn't understand, they didn't understand what mental health really is. They didn't understand um, that there's a mental health spectrum. Also that just because someone was suicidal today, this afternoon, doesn't mean they're suicidal tonight. And there are some people who do live in a state of chronic suicidal um, thoughts, but that's not everyone. And, and like I said, I went through more suicidal episodes in 2020 than, than I have in my life. And this is one of the biggest challenges I've had. I mean, just because someone has suicidal thoughts does not mean they are suicidal. Correct. Correct. And actually that is really important. And it's something I, I also talk about is helping people understand that suicidal thoughts are actually very natural. Mm -hmm. We all have them. We do. Okay. They, some people might be more extreme than others, but this, even the idea of, I can't continue. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't, I can't live. I can't get through this. Those are all thoughts of suicide that are very normal when we're going through an extremely difficult situation. And it is our body's way of communicating to us that something is wrong. Something isn't right. And so that's where we then have to look at it and go, okay. And this is where we have to stop talking about mental health simply as mental health. It is not. It is what I would call human health. And it's where we have to look at the physical body. We have to look at the mental, our ability to think and process. Mm -hmm. And then we have to look at the emotional body, right? That is what we're feeling. And so we have to be able to look at all three of those. When, when my daughter attempted, one of the most beautiful moments happened the next day where I sat down with her, not really intending this to happen, but I sat down with her and I said to her, Kaylee, I've realized that my greatest fear isn't that you're going to die. Okay, don't get me wrong, I would be heartbroken. But my greatest fear is that you're going to live a life of misery 
and that you're going to seek out drugs and alcohol as a way to cope and medicate. I learned a long time ago that making decisions based out of fear never ends well. And yet that's all I have been doing. I have been afraid to hug you. I've been afraid to come in and wake you up in the mornings in the way that I used to. You know, I've been afraid to talk to you when you're upset and I'm done. I'm done. I'm no longer going to do that. I'm also no longer going to simply try to keep you alive. I am going to fight for you to live a life you love. And in that moment, everything changed because my focus changed. I was no longer thinking about what I was afraid of. I was no longer thinking about that she might die or that I don't know how to help her, that I've tried everything and nothing's working. I shifted my mindset to what is it gonna take for her to love this life? And I started making phone calls and, and trying to figure out how to get her the support she needed. And on our website, growingoutofdarkness.org, you can read about the changes that we made, but it was about 15, I think 15 changes that we ended up implementing to be able to support her and, and watch her transform from this child who had been struggling for a year and a half, severely struggling for a year and a half to thriving. 15 things that you changed in your right. life. And I will say too, and not to tell people whether they should or shouldn't, but we did not do any medication. I want to be very clear um, because that's another part of the stigma I think we really have to address is that there's no shame for the people who are on medication if it is helping them. But there are a lot of people out there who don't want to be on it or have been on it and it didn't help or, or it made them worse. Um, we need to understand, again, the antidepressants, anti-anxiety, that is going to treat the symptom, but it's not treating the root cause, right? So it's just like taking over-the-counter allergy medication. It's, it's going to stop you from sneezing and coughing and watery eyes, but it's not actually treating your allergy. And it can actually mask a Absolutely. bunch of other things. Absolutely. So we're, there is no debate in my mind about medication or not medication. There's no debate in my mind about you know medical versus holistic. The reality is that whatever keeps your child alive first so that then you can start looking at, is it possible for them to create a life that they love? Right. And, and for me, the reason why medication was not an option was because my dad died while on medication. And I have two siblings who attempted while on medication. So my feeling was medication actually puts people in my family at higher risk of suicide. And that's not one I'm willing to take. And let's just call it what it is. There's a disclaimer that comes with the antidepressants that I was on when I was dealing with my first bout of clinical depression. And the disclaimer in the literature with the medication was that this could increase your risk. Yeah. Very few people read the paperwork. Um, I had a really smart doctor who said, Jackie, you're not at your highest risk right now. When you start to get a little bit of energy back, you will be at a higher risk than you are now. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing is that there are a lot of medications being prescribed by doctors who are not explaining 
what the where the risk is, not just that there is risk, but when is there risk? Mm-hmm. And when you are been in extreme distress and you and in my case with depression, this um, lack, total lack of energy, understanding that as I got a little bit of energy back, my life was still not anywhere near what I wanted it to. But now I could had volition. I had enough energy to take an action. That's when I was at risk. And understanding that made a difference for me. Well, and I think it's really important, you know, your focus is on on teen suicide prevention. It's really, really important that if you are taking your child to see someone and medication is being recommended, know who this doctor is, know what their background is, do blood work. First and foremost, I would recommend doing blood work because there could also be a hormone imbalance. There could be nutrition deficits. Um, again, we, we went through a lot to try to better understand what was going on with Kaylee and, and what I know from friends who have gone on medication, um, the ones who've had the most success were working with doctors who were monitoring their child regularly because they are still growing. Mm-hmm. Their body is still changing. There are hormone changes, which means that you have to be paying attention to that dosage of medication even more strictly than when you're an adult. Because we're not changing as fast. Correct. Even, even though the world around us is changing faster, the older we get, we ourselves might not be changing as fast. Right. Oh my goodness. It is such a journey, Jenny. Mm. It is such a journey. And coming into this place of where we are calm on this topic and we're not, I mean, decided I had to call out the elephant in the room and say, you know, hey, I found out after my daughter's attempt that there's a checklist on the Center for Disease Control site of the signs that your loved one is at risk. Mm-hmm. It was the most devastating few minutes of my life reading that checklist. It's the most guilt-producing document ever written because nobody goes there until they have a need to go there. We wait until there is a need before we talk about suicide, before we learn Mm -hmm. about suicide, before we understand mental wellness, mental health, human health. It's not the topic of conversation until after there's an attempt Mm -hmm. and they don't all survive. Right. so I highly recommend that people avoid. Yeah, I was like, no, yeah. that wasn't helpful. I think yeah. waiting for signs, looking for signs is actually looking for trouble. Oh, I agree completely. And, and when you hear about parents who are so focused on their child and they're so afraid for their child, I've been there. So I, I you've been there, Jackie, we've both been there. Um, we have to shift our focus. And, and this is where I think one of the, um, one of the greatest lessons that was taught to me that put some control back into my world was with this holistic psychiatrist that I worked with here in Minnesota. And she was talking to me about, you know, people who have high empathy 
And I'm going to tell you, I really do think this younger generation, more and more of these kids have very high empathy, more than probably any generation that came before them. Um, And we need to understand that. We need to understand what that means, because a lot of people think that empathy is simply the ability to feel what another person's feeling. But someone who has high empathy means that they actually can't control when they feel what another person's feeling. So when you have a child go into a space that feels really heavy and and they're telling you, I don't want to be here. I can't be here. I can't be at school. This is too toxic. This is too heavy. This is too hard. It is very likely that they have very high empathy. So what we want to do is try to bring balance to that. And one of the things that she taught me was to write my daughter's name at the top of a piece of paper. And then to write out all of the qualities and characteristics I love about my daughter, write down the moments that I've treasured, right? So they can be vague or they can be specific, but she said, the more that I write, the more I will see. And what was really interesting was I changed my conversations with other parents. So I was meeting with these other parents whose children were also struggling And I would talk about, oh my gosh, it was really hard. And this happened and this happened. And my focus was on all the things that were going wrong and how frustrated I was, because again, this is what I do. But when I changed my conversation to, this is what we're trying now, and this is the direction we're going in. And I believe she can be better. And I believe that we're making progress. I started to see her making progress. When I was focused on everything that was going wrong, things only continued to get worse. And she didn't have to be in the same room to feel that, right? And especially I think a parent to a child, they feel us, they feel our energy. So whatever we can do to stay grounded, to be healthy, to get the support we need to navigate this time, to be able to put as much positive energy out there as possible is going to be best for everyone. I didn't understand that last piece that the best way I could help my daughter was to help myself. And it was only when I interviewed Aaron Huey on an earlier season of the Suicide Prevention Show, and he has um, a very uh, well-respected and successful residential program for suicidal teenagers. And his process for the entire family starts with adults taking care of themselves first, and their adult-to-adult relationship second, and then, and only then, focusing attention. Mm -hmm. Because they said, if you put attention to your kids before your adult relationships are stable, before you're stable in your personal relationship with yourself, you can't help them. Right. And yet we, well, we, I was raised where um, putting myself first was considered selfish, Now I consider it being self-centered as in who else should be in the center of my own life. If I'm not in the center of my own life, whose life am I living? Right. Right. I agree completely. So I can hear the elephant has returned, meaning that the workmen are back and the packing is happening. And (laughs) so we will accept that that's what's happening. And let's talk for just a minute about the mission about, you were talking about your board, about your nonprofit, about what you're doing, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm popping your gift link into the chat so that everyone can grab it. It is such a beautiful gift and I received my copy of your book. So thank you. 
Thank yes. you very much. And we'll show it. So yeah. Yeah. It is. So in this picture, actually on the cover of the book, this picture was taken by Kaylee, by my daughter when she was 10 years old. Um, and I just I want to say um really quickly that that while I have this book that is focused on providing support to those who've lost a loved one to healing, it really can be used for anyone going through any kind of trauma or any loss, because the, the point of the book is healing. And, um, you know, I didn't sit down one day and think I have all the answers to healing. Let me write a book. It really happened because a friend of mine reached out to me knowing everything that I'd been through with my dad and with my own struggles. And, um, she had two friends who had each lost a loved one to suicide within one week of each other. And so she asked me if I would be willing to write them a letter, letting them know that healing was possible. And about three weeks after she requested the letter, I called her and said, I haven't forgotten you. I just don't know where to stop. And I sent her what I was working on. And she actually called me back and she said, don't stop you have a message that needs to be heard, just keep writing. And so for three years, I worked on this, you know, again, my priority being a mom, we also moved during that time. So I wasn't always writing, I really only would write when I felt moved and when I felt prompted to do so. And, and even then it was this like, my children will always know my story, they'll always know who my dad was to me. I really didn't think that it was going to become a book until I happened to be on an airplane flying next to a man who asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a stay at home mom. And then he asked me about my hobbies. And so I talked to him about, you know, uh, mental health and suicide prevention. And it turned out that he was actually a speaker and was um, a suicide attempt survivor. And so he asked me if he could read my book. And I said, no, no, you may not. I said, I haven't let anyone read it. And he said, well, may I share my story with you? And he did. And he shared his story um, in graphic detail, one that I, I will not share because I don't know who my audience is um, and I don't want to cause anyone any pain. But what I can tell you is it is a miracle that he is alive today. And what I learned in that story was that at the age of 19, he attempted suicide on August 12th, 1978, which is the day I was born. And so I looked at him with tears in my eyes and he said, may I read your book now? And I said, yes. And so I sent it to him and within 24 hours, he called me and he said, you can't keep this to yourself. You have to share it with the world. So that was in November of 2016. In January of 2017, I started a nonprofit because I knew that if this book was going to be published, that um, it wasn't something I was going to profit off of. It was something that I was going to give to anyone who needed it. And it wasn't about financial need. I have lived all over this country as well as internationally. And what I've learned is there is nothing more isolating than losing someone to suicide or going through a mental health crisis. And so whatever I can do to offer support to someone who's going through it, then, then that's what I'll do. Um, so yeah, so that's how the book came about. And, uh, and so it started out really with a focus on supporting those who had lost someone to suicide, but through that work, um, I was invited to conferences and events where I would hear advocates and experts talk about mental health and suicide in a way that I felt was truly detrimental and harmful to the audience. 
And so I now do work that is focused on teaching people how to have these conversations, how to understand mental health from a humanized perspective and how to support it. Wow. You shared that with me. Um, One piece of your story when you started going down the path with your daughter and exploring all of these alternatives and all of the holistic things that you could no longer speak about mental health the way that you used to. Right. And for that, I am incredibly, incredibly indebted and grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's important. Sorry, go ahead. Not, that's we're gonna. The fact that we haven't talked over each other is almost in and of itself a miracle. Because when we were first talking, that's all we did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much love in your story, and I am incredibly grateful to the man on the plane who helped you see that you could not keep it to yourself. A gift is a gift only when it's given. And your willingness to share your story, your expertise, but most importantly, your vulnerability is a true gift, Jenny. Thank Thank you you. for sharing it. Thank you for having me. And uh, to everyone who's here, everyone who's listening, Um, Thank you for being a part of this, right? It takes all of us for real change to happen. It absolutely does. Uh, There was a joke that said it took a village to raise a speaker. Yeah. Before I could speak, I had to have a whole village behind me. And I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm really grateful to the stranger on the plane who would not just let it go. Me too. He and I have stayed in touch. Oh, I can believe that. I can believe that. So love to hear this story from his perspective sometimes. (laughs) It's not easy, especially when we talk about stigma, Jenny. You brought up another stigma in our society, and I don't think you did it intentionally. But it was when you were talking with the man on the plane, and he asked you what you did, and you said, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. And it was just softer and faster and not, yeah. Right. And, and that's the other way that we isolate ourselves is we, we judge that whatever we're doing is not worth sharing or talking about or good enough. Right, right. And it's... And it no, I agree with you. And I, I actually, um, you know, what's interesting is right before this, I had been at um, a motivational speaker conference that my sister was working at and she had invited me to be there. And it was, it was a really big deal in Dallas. And um, it was interesting because, you know, when I would tell people that I was a stay at home mom, they would actually walk away from me. Right. There were all these entrepreneurs there and they were all networking and and they really didn't want to give me the time of day when they found out I was a stay at home mom. And and there's two people from that group who did give me their time and their attention. And to this day, we have stayed in touch and we see each other. And when we do, um, you know, we have these magical conversations that that are about changing lives. And, um, and so I agree with you. Yes, we, we definitely should not 
um, diminish any role that we play. And in all honesty, as, as, as I've said, since Kaylee attempted, um, I always took my role as a mom seriously. I, I wanted that to be my priority, but I didn't always take pride in it. And, and I do now, I, I very much do. And it is, it is my number one priority. And in fact, even since getting a divorce, um, I actually have said my, my ring finger is no longer, this isn't a statement of my marriage. Um, my daughters and I were all going to get rings together because this is my priority finger. And, and it is a reminder of what my priorities are in those moments where maybe I lose my way that all I have to do is reach down and I can look or I can feel um, that it's myself and my two daughters um, are my priority. Oh, what a lovely statement. I like that. So you don't have the ring yet. I only have mine. Um, yeah. And it was because I had this made before we got a divorce. And it was from an old bracelet that I loved. And I had it made into a ring. And when we agreed to get a divorce, that's what I was most upset. Not that I was most upset about, but as far as the jewelry goes, I was like, man, I loved this ring. I had it made. I had it made for me. And so then I realized why wouldn't I just continue to wear it? It's, it was mine. And so, so yes, the girls, my daughters have been traveling um, just as much as I have been. And so once we all get settled, we're going to go and pick out rings together. Oh, what a great thing. Cool. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being willing to share your story and your book in a way that honors your true set of values in the world. And I just thank you so much for being part of our journey. Oh, absolutely. It's been an honor to be here today. And um, you are one of those hosts that, that truly understands my mission and my values. And that is more rare than, than I'd like to say. So I really appreciate you, Jackie, and, and all that you're doing to support people and, and change the world. <laughs>